I think everybody has had this experience where you have been preparing for something, training for something, working up, looking forward to something, and then the moment comes when you're in doing the something and you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, I remember when I got my first job, like real job where I had a boss. Um, I worked as a security guard at this factory that made auto parts. And um, I had a week of training where I shadowed the other people various times of the day and learned the job and how to fill out the forms and do all the stuff, right? And after that week of training, I show up for my first night solo, and I worked the night shift, uh, so it was like 11 to 7, and I sit there, everyone's gone, the whole factory clears out, and I think, I am 18, and I, I have no clue what to do. Um, it wasn't a terribly hard job, mind you. Uh, I was basically a glorified fire detector. Um, that was my job, basically. Walk around, make sure the place wasn't burning down. But it was a huge plant. There was a bunch of different buildings, and I had to drive around at once an hour and check everything and then write in my little form and all that stuff. And, and the only thing I knew not to do, was, since it was the night shift, was I thought, if I forget something, I am not going to call my boss because that's going to get me fired. That was pretty much the only, like, sure thing I knew about this job. Uh, but it was so funny, though, because I did. I had that week, and there, I, everybody's telling me what to do and how to do this job, and, and then phew, you're there in the middle of it, and it's all kind of gone, and you're overwhelmed. Uh, probably the biggest example of this was uh, becoming a dad for the first time. Um, I asked Abby, I said, what's something you prepared for, and then when the time came, you felt like you didn't know what you are doing? And she said, kids. First thing, I was like, yeah, that's what I thought of too. Uh, I still remember when we loaded tiny baby James into the car seat for the first time and put him in the car in the hospital parking lot. And, you know, we had read parenting books. Um, I had everybody telling me what it was like to have a kid and parent a kid and all that stuff. Um, I had uncled before. I uh, changed diapers and all that stuff before. And, yeah, it's, here we are. We walk out of the hospital, click him in the car seat, and it's like, okay, I guess this is ours. I guess we're in charge here. You know, in the hospital, you had nurses. You could, hey, something's happening. Can you, what, can we need a little help. What do we do about this? They, taught, they showed us how to swaddle, all, how to bathe them and stuff. But in there, like, if there's a problem, you're like, where's this kid's parents? What do we do about this? You know, it's like, oh, no, it's me. What am I going to, oh, no. And then you think, well, I hope. I guess we'll keep him alive, hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, we did okay. Um, but there's that moment, again, no matter how much preparing you do, you get into that moment and you're like, I know I've been trained for this, I know I've prepared for this, but in the moment, I am like so incredibly overwhelmed. I can only imagine what Jesus' disciples felt like after three years of him training them, showing them what to do, teaching them about this new life that they were supposed to take to the world, and then he's gone, and you're like, all right, guys, I guess it's, I guess it's us, you know? Uh, who goes first? I, don't, I can't imagine what they must have felt, because um, they, even up to the end, it seemed like they didn't quite understand that he was going to go away. Like, they just kind of had this mindset that Jesus is going to be with us this whole time anyway, so whatever happens, we'll just go to Jesus. You know, we'll ask him what to do. We'll lean on him. If we mess something up, he'll come in and save the day. And because they just assumed Jesus was going to be with them, every time he said, no, I'm not, 
I'm going away. I'm going to die on a cross. I'm going back to heaven to be with the Father. Anytime he said that kind of stuff, it just kind of went over their heads because they were like, I don't know what that meant because he's surely going to stay forever. They just could not get it through their heads. But Jesus tried and tried and tried to prepare them by telling telling them these things, but they just couldn't get it. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to look at one of those moments where he's trying to prepare them. Again, whether they totally understood it or not, he was really trying to train them and prepare them for the moment that they would go on without him. Where They would be the ones carrying this amazing mission of new life and salvation to the world. Um, And we're going to look at another instance, like we have these other past weeks, of where Jesus is encouraging his people to be a people of unity. Um, Because we are in the third week of this series called Unity, and we have been kind of looking at something that I believe is a major issue in the modern American church. It is the fact that Jesus desperately wanted his people, his followers, to be a united people, and we are anything but that. We don't get along with people in different churches. We don't get along with people in our churches. We, there's church splits. We leave churches. We go to another church when someone makes us mad. We are anything but united anymore in the American church. And yet Jesus prayed for his followers to be united. One of the most common uh, commands throughout the New Testament, uh, the apostles were commanding people, be united. Stay together, forgive each other, be one united people of the same heart, same mind, same mission, all of this stuff. And we've kind of dropped the ball. And so I think um, we have to take this call seriously. It's time we started taking this call to unity seriously. Um, And the reason we have to take it seriously is because it is always, always, always going to be easier to not be united. It just is. It's kind of natural for us to divide up. It's easier to find another church than to do the hard work of digging through what happened and messes and somebody made you mad and forgiveness. It's just going to be easier. Um, It's going to be easier than admitting that you might not have been 100% right. It's going to be easier um, than working through whatever issues and pain that you feel. Um, And so what we're going to do today is we're going to spend our time in John chapter 13, Uh, John 13, we'll start in verse 31. Um, John is one of the biographies that we have on Jesus um, in the New Testament. We have four biographies about Jesus, four different perspectives on his life. John is the most different than the other three. The other three have some, you can read the first three Gospels and feel like, didn't I just, like, is this a repeat? Like, what's going on? But John's kind of its own animal. Um, So that's where we're going to be. So if you want to grab a Bible, great. There's Bibles in the pew. If you brought one, awesome. You can use the Bible app on your phone, um, or the verses will be on the screen here. And the chunk of uh, that we're looking at is in a section that scholars call the last discourse, which is just a fancy way of saying it's kind of the last bit of teaching Jesus does before he goes to the cross. Um, it happened during the Last Supper, if you've ever heard of that. It's the last meal that Jesus ate with his friends, his apostles. It was... Um, the meal where he instituted this new covenant saying, my believers are going to be in a different relationship with God than what has come before. It's where he started um, the, uh, the practice of communion, or uh, the, some churches call it the Eucharist, um, or there's other names for it as well. We have a howling toilet, by the way. I don't know what, um, I've never had a howling toilet in my house personally, but um, 
I guess of all the things in your house that could howl, that's not too bad. That's the least scary, probably. Um, but um, anyway, that's the way he instituted the meal of the Last Supper. Um, and so <clears throat> Jesus starts um, right after um, he, uh, right before, excuse me, he starts in on what we're going to read today. He leans over to Judas and kind of discreetly says, I know what you're going to do, so do it. And then Judas, Judas gets up and leaves to kind of set in motion his plan, what's going to lead to Jesus being arrested and put on the cross. And so that happens right before where we start in John chapter 13, verse 31. It says, And when he had gone out, talking about Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. There's a lot going on there. Let's just kind of break it down. First, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now kind of means that, well, the final act of his life is underway. Once Judas leaves to go kind of set the plan in motion, this is kind of the last stage of Jesus' life. And he says, it's time for me to be glorified. And the way he would be glorified would be through being perfectly obedient to God by doing everything God asked him to do. He is getting ready to kind of show that he finished the whole thing, did it all the way perfectly. He was the perfect example of what a human was meant to be. Um, to be glorified means to be honored, to be lifted up for something you said or did. And Jesus will be glorified in going to the cross. We don't think about the ugliness of the cross, of the cross being an act of glory. But in Jesus' love and sacrifice and his willingness to obey his heavenly father in anything, it is a very, very glorious thing that he did as he humbly surrenders himself to be a sacrifice for all of humanity. And so Jesus says he's going to be glory, there's going to be glory for him. And then he goes into this weird little back and forth where he's like, and then I'm gloried, the father will be gloried. And then when the father's gloried, then I'll be glorified. And it's kind of this back and forth, weird, mutual glorification. And it's really weird to explain, and I did, I, this is a bad job, okay? I'm just letting you know this is not a good way to explain it, but it's the best I came up with after a week of trying to figure out how to explain it, okay? Let's think you have a sports team. You can pick whatever your favorite team is, and you, they have a really good player, okay? Like the star player that does awesome things all the time, always gets points on the board, and kind of elevates the team with them, right? When that person does a lot of good things, they bring value and attention and fame to the person who owns the franchise. Like the owner's like, this is great. I'm, look at all the extra money coming in because I got this great player who's doing all these great things. The owner then says, you know what? I'm going to take advantage of this, and I'm going to start putting him on more of the posters and advertisements that are scattered around my stadium. We're going to start getting his name and his number and his jerseys out a little bit more. So I'm going to make this player even bigger so that he can make me even bigger. Like there's a little bit of this both ways they benefit each other, glorifying each other. Again, not a great example, but that's a little bit about what's going on here. Because as Jesus is glorified by being perfectly obedient and saving the human race, he's showing that this was God's plan, and God is so good because this was his plan. And it just kind of goes both ways. Um, so ultimately, Jesus is glorified and the Father with him because Jesus was simply amazing. And then he goes on in verse 33. He says, little children. Um, this sounds like an insult to us. Like if I went, little ones, 
you'd be like, why is he being such a jerk? Why is he patronizing us? But this was a, an affectionate term. Like, it really wasn't meant to be mean. This is just kind of him saying that he really cared for these people, kind of taking a fatherly approach here. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I am saying, I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Um, there's several times in John where he says this exact thing to other people. That's what it's saying here, um, that he said it several times to the Jews. But basically, he's trying to tell them, I am, once more time, I'm not going to be here forever. And they're like, okay, but later when you're still here, it'll be okay, right, Jesus? And he's like, no, dummies, I'm not going to be here forever. They just, I mean, until he gets arrested, they are like, you know what? I don't think he's going to be here forever. They just didn't get it. And so he says, where I'm going, you can't come. Like, for, for once, you've been following me everywhere for three years, but I'm going to a place where you're not going to be able to follow me, and you're going to be on your own. And because of that, because they're going to be on their own, Jesus says, I'm going to give you a command to live by in this time when you are living without me standing beside you. And he says this in verse 34, a new commandment I give you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So, that's his command. So when you're going to be without me, this is what you do. This is what's going to be one of the guiding principles of your life. That you love others, you love each other, excuse me, as I have loved you. And it seems so simple. And you might even be thinking... I thought we were talking about unity. Where's the unity talk? Because nowhere in this does it say anything about unity. But the idea is still wrapped up in this. Because unity is the root, or excuse me, love is the root of unity. You can't be united with people without this Christ-like love. And as we talked about last week, and as I kind of already said a little bit, we will have no shortage of reasons to not get along. We will always be able to come up with a reason to cut people out of our lives, to walk away, to be angry. One of the, um, one of the common phrases in our culture is, you don't have time for that kind of negativity in your life. Like there's lots of jokes, you know, it was like, it's like, oh, I had a friend who told me today they weren't really that big of a fan of cheese, so I cut, I deleted them from my phone because I don't have that kind of time for that kind of negativity in my life, right? That's just kind of a, a common thing. But this says, no, we are called to live together, to, to work out disagreements in ways that build the relationship back stronger. It's hard work to do that, that we forgive instead of holding grudges, but yet, it's only a matter of time until those rocky moments come up. I mean, we were talking about it in, uh, at, nine, at the 9 o'clock hour. That it's, a, it's just a matter of time. In fact, it's probably happened to a lot of you. Someone's going to hurt your feelings. You know, one of the common ones that's happened here before, uh, that hasn't happened in a long time, I don't think so, but we used to have a, a couple of uh, older ladies who were, they had a spot where they sat every week in church, and that was their spot. I mean, I don't know if they had like a real estate deed to say this three feet of pew is my three feet of pew. I don't know. But like if anybody just came in unknowingly, a new person sat there, they'd walk up like, you're in my spot. And um, it's, it's, you know, you wouldn't think like a four foot tall, white haired lady that's all skin and bones could be that intimidating. But it is. It is. It can be a little intimidating. And so there's times where people got hurt, got offended, got pushed off to the side. I mean, it's just a matter of time till that kind of stuff happens in a church. And so those are going to happen because the church, one of the best things and worst things about it is that it's filled full of people. And we're going to get all the good and the bad that goes with a group of people. 
I mean, if you think about your family, whether you love your family or not, you know there's some good things and there's some bad things. You know, there's awesome stuff and there's weird stuff. And, and families are, when we come together, if we're going to be united and work through stuff, at some level, the root of that has got to be love. And so one of the reasons Jesus so clearly commands that you guys have got to love one another, that my followers are going to be the people that love each other, is because it's just not going to be our natural response when things go sideways. It's just not. And so we have to be people who choose love over anger, love over grudges, and love over sometimes being right and telling everybody that we're right. Now, one thing that's a trouble, though, when you say something like this, just love one another. It, there's almost nobody in our culture that's going to disagree with that. problem is we don't all have the same idea what love is. Okay, Some people, uh, to them, love means affirmation, that you do whatever you want to do, and I'm just going to be your cheering section. You live however you want to live, and no matter what you do, I'm just going to be beside you clapping and cheering all along the way. That's what love means to some people. Uh, to some people, love means being nice. I think there's a lot of people who easily think someone loves them just because someone shows them kindness and gentleness because they've never had a great real example of love. But Jesus didn't want us to be iffy on what he meant when he talked about love. He said, okay, love. You love me as I have loved you. He said, so the things I have done for you are the kind of things I want you to do for other people. Now, uh, how many of you remember back to the first part of this year? We'll just start there. You think, how many of you think you remember January and February? All right. I love the total lack of faith in our collective memories. Um, okay, let me get a little more specific. How many of you remember when we talked about a series about how not to read the Bible? Okay, a few more. Okay, getting specific. How many of you remember the week we said um, one of the principles was when you're reading the Bible, never read a Bible verse? Yeah. And I wouldn't say don't read a Bible verse. I mean, never read just one in isolation because you can get, you can miss the point when you read just one. You've got to read a bigger section, right? You've got to zoom out, okay? Well, when Jesus says, love as I have loved, and you think, okay, Jesus, how have you loved? If you zoom out a little bit, on the front end of the story and the back end of the story, Jesus shows his kind of love. Because right before this, Jesus, as the guys were coming together for this final meal, that again, they probably didn't realize was the final meal they would share with Jesus, Jesus washes their feet. And we're in our culture, we're kind of like, gross. But in that culture, it was so incredibly gross. Um, first century Rome, a lot of people wore sandals or some leather footwear. If you just Google Roman shoes, it's a horrible thing to look at. I mean, you think about how cool it would be to get a time machine and go back in time. This is the kind of stuff I think about. Like, oh, man, they didn't have shoes. They didn't have toothbrushes. They didn't have deodorant. Oh, my gosh, I can't go. I'm, I can only go forward in time. I can't go back. Um, but they, So they, you got these people. Let's say they're walking around in sandals. A lot of people did. You've got the dust from the roads collecting to their feet. But people weren't the only thing that walked on the roads. There was animals. And I don't know if you know this, but animals don't necessarily say, hey, you know what? i got to make a pit stop over here. Um, they just go where they're walking. And then that gets ground into the dirt, becomes a part of the road. And that, with all the other dirt, collects in the toes and everything else. Um, another kind of Roman shoe, it, being nice, it was kind of a leather bag that tied onto your feet. So imagine having just leather over your bare foot as you're walking miles upon miles, day after day after day. What kind of stink 
would grow inside that little leather pouch around your ankles. It would be a horrible thing. And this is, there's no Lotrimin, there's no Tenactin, there's no antifungal medicine to treat any of that. It just is, and it is forever. And so these are the kinds of things we're looking into. And so uh, one thing about this, because people's feet tended to be so gross, uh, one thing that was kind when you were uh, entertaining people, they would come into your house, was you would offer the chance to have their feet washed. And whoever was the lowest person on the org chart in your house did the feet washing. If someone was rich enough to have servants, the lowest servant did it. Um, if they had kids, it was probably the youngest kid who did it. Um, that's just the way that this worked. How many of you are babies in the family? I'm the baby of the family. We're the feet washers, okay? And so we we would, and so that, and if, you, if you had any claim to have any sort of authority to say, you do this, not me, you took that chance. Because nobody voluntarily sat down to scrub the messy, nasty gunk out of these fungusy toes. Nobody volunteered for it, okay? Except for Jesus. How weird is that? In fact, they hated the fact that Jesus, I mean, they understood him as the Messiah, the Savior of their people. And he sits down to start washing their feet. And several of them are like, no, 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 I will not let you do this. And Jesus says, I have to do this. And he washed their feet as an example to say, this is what my love is. It's a love of service, a love where there is no job too small. And so even though he was the greatest of all, he became the servant of all. That's why he said this. this is, we're rewinding a little bit, going back up in John chapter 13. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And then he comes back a little bit later and says, I want you to love the way I have loved. And what a real example of lowering yourself and serving. And then right after the story, Jesus goes to the cross. The greatest person, the only person who never sinned, who never deserved any kind of punishment, ends up taking the ultimate punishment. Not because he deserved it, but because he wanted to serve us and rescue us. And so Jesus laid down his life. He was constantly showing there was no job too low or no job beneath him because he was never thinking about himself. He was thinking about those of us who needed to be loved and needed to be saved. And that is a, a huge shift in our perspective that needs to take place if we're going to follow this new command to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Because we live in the age of selfishness. Everything is telling you that you're the king of the world, you're the queen of the world, you're the boss of your life, and you can just do whatever you want to do. And so we look at every situation from how does this affect me? Well, if I'm called to love and wash feet, how does this affect me? Ooh, no, thank you. I don't want to do that. Find somebody else to do it, not me. But if we shift our perspective and look like Jesus did on the needs of other people, and you can still not like doing it, but you do it because there's need. There's people that need help. There's ways that people need to be served. There's care that can be given. It's not about us. Jesus tries to get us outside of ourselves and help us to be a true servant. Okay? Now, you might, now, what does all this have to do with unity? Well, imagine a church where believers 
love each other in this way, the way Jesus has loved us. He died on the cross for us. A church where everyone puts the needs of everyone else above their own needs. A place where everyone is concerned about doing good for others, not having good done for them. How could anger or disunity or grudges survive in that kind of environment? How? They couldn't, okay? Because no one is fighting to get their way when we're loving as Jesus loved us. Uh, we're, we're fighting to give other people their way. I've often joked, like, it'd be like holding a door after you. No, after you, after you. No, no I said you. No, you. It'd, like, we'd be fighting to serve each other better. Like, that would be, like, it's just, it would be this weird backwards thing. Um, no one's going to be able to hold a grudge because we would be deeply saturated in looking at how Jesus loved us. He forgave us of our mess. We didn't deserve it. He rescued us just because of his love and grace. And so when I look at somebody else and they do something wrong to me, how, what, how could I possibly hold that grudge over their head when Jesus didn't hold one over mine? We could, Love is the foundation of any unity we might have. Loving like Jesus is what makes unity possible, at least the kind of unity that he wanted to show. He wanted us to live out. And if we fail to live out this new command of Jesus, if any of us are here for selfish reasons, then this kind of unity can't happen. It just won't be able. So Jesus wants us to understand that love is the foundation to being a people of unity, of sacrificing and serving for one another. But he also sneaks in one last reason why we should be a people of love like him. He says this in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Basically, when we love like this, our world's going to see it and notice it and think something is going on there. Um, and the reason for that is because it's not natural to love and to serve. To, 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 instead of having everything be a race to the top, we're the people who are trying to race to the bottom and try to serve the most people and give the most away, and help the most, not get everything for ourselves. It's so backwards from the way our world exists anymore. And, and so if we can be these kinds of people who truly devote ourselves to living this way, we become this wonderfully weird place that a lot of people, they won't understand, but they're like, it's cool. I don't get what kind of Kool-Aid those guys are all drinking, but it's cool, and they all love each other, and man, I'm here for it. Uh, and because it's so incredibly different when they see people bending over backwards for each other again racing not to get ahead but to be the biggest servant and love like this it doesn't make sense and there's no logical conclusion to figure out from why people love this way other than you know what maybe there is something supernatural about all this because i think unity is a gift from god it's a supernatural thing. When we align ourselves with who God wants us to be and we start loving like Jesus, it becomes this supernatural thing that is noticeable by people. And so what Jesus is kind of letting us know here is that loving each other like Jesus is like one of the best forms of evangelism that we can take part in. Because this kind of love, like really selfless love, I think that's what people crave. I think we want somebody who's going to just pour their life out for us and care for us. I think you know that's how your best friends are your best friends. 
you know, what do we call them, ride or die? They're my ride or die person, like meaning they're with me through thick and thin. However, no matter how well this goes, they're with me, okay? That's the kind of love we all crave. It's the kind of love I think that we know is the truest form of love. It speaks to our heart in ways other things don't. And it's something that has become so exceedingly rare in our world, even from Christians. And that's supposed to not be that way. And it needs to change. And if we can have this love like this for other people, if we can successfully pull this off and be a united people who love like Jesus, um, I think our culture is giving us this amazing opportunity to be radically different because everybody's angry about something out there. And if you can come to a place where nobody's angry, where it's love and grace and acceptance and mercy, and even when you make a mistake, people aren't like, boo, get out of here, you're done. But we're like, it happens to the best of us, and we lift each other up and we carry on. I mean, that is a shining light that something different is going on here. And so I think we start loving the way Jesus has loved us. We experience peace and unity like never before, all while showing people in our communities how deep and rich and life-giving the love of Jesus truly is. But to do that, we've got to be like Jesus. We've got to put a towel around our waist, wash some feet, and ultimately be willing to lay down our lives for each other and choose love. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this call to love like Jesus loved us. There is no greater example of care and kindness, and sacrifice than Jesus. And I pray that we constantly are coming back to the reality that the love of Jesus is such a beautiful, almost anomalous thing in, in history. We just don't see this kind of love that he would lay down his life for us, even though we don't deserve it, and he absolutely didn't deserve it. So let this daily realization, hopefully, that we see the love of Jesus, appreciate the love of Jesus, are wowed by the love of Jesus, are blown away in gratitude for the love that Jesus has shown us, shape how we love in return. Help us to be people of love and help us to be people of unity so that we can shine your light to the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.